opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Radio. Today's date is March 1st, 2017, and it is also the first day of Women's History Month, uh, as celebrated by some people in the United States. So we definitely want to start off by recognizing uh, women's historical role in abolitionism in the United States, and indeed worldwide. Um, anything that was done here in the United States addressing slavery, of course, would impact uh, other places as well, with this being one of the main hubs for slavery and continues to be. That's more true today than at any time in history. The United States is the hub of modern-day slavery and human trafficking. So, again, welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. I want to celebrate women historically linked to abolitionism in the United States. But, of course, we share news and information related to 21st century slavery and human trafficking. Now, um, as I already mentioned, it falls, today's broadcast falls on the first day of Women's Histories Month. So we want to give a shout out to all the women abolitionists, past and present. Women are being perversely targeted in modern slavery with statistics showing they are the fastest growing group being turned into prison slaves. The ACLU in statistics they release show that one million women are behind bars or under the control of the criminal injustice system. And women are the fastest growing segment of the incarcerated population, increasing uh, at nearly double the rate of men since 1985. That's according to the ACLU. I couldn't get a date on those statistics. Um, I think they mentioned up to 2005 since 1985 to 2005, and I can tell you it's only continued to get worse as we have shared news stories that shown that uh, this trend of enslaving women uh, continues in the United States. Overwhelmingly, the women are women of color, particularly black women, followed by Hispanic women, then white women, and other non-white categories. Black women represent 30%, again, black women represent 30% of all incarcerated women in the United States, although they represent only about 13% 
of the female population generally. So that pretty much mirrors what we hear about the percentage of the black uh, population, those classified as black um, as a whole, 13% of the U.S. population. So they're falling right along that. Uh, Among all female state prisoners, two-thirds of them are mothers of minor children representing the destruction of families just like during slavery pre-1865. Again, welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Max Park, this is off tonight as he takes some time with his family. So it'll just be myself, Scotty Reed, and Johanna and Eliah tonight holding down the New Abolitionist Fort. Of course, open lines, we will always be a free-flowing program for our abolitionists out there or would-be abolitionists who have questions. We'll get those numbers out later. Uh, but we are scheduled to be joined by the host of the Mocha Soul radio show, who is a member of the Prison Lives Matter Facebook group, which wants to bring families, communities, and organizations together to help people in prison have a voice and hopes to change the injustices within the corrupted system. Now, I just only became aware of um, this interview. I don't even have the person's name. So if you're listening, anytime you want to call in, this is something that was uh, arranged by Max, I believe. Um, But um, if you are on our board, uh, please join us. The telephone number is 866-510-9025, 9025 hit star star to unmute yourself uh so we're looking for this representative from prison lives matter which is a facebook group has about 1200 members um so uh definitely uh that shows that people at least those 1200 people i would hope join that group because they have an interest in in ending slavery um of course we'll have our regular news segments pulled from the timelines of our Facebook page, New Abolitionist Radio, which, by the way, reached over 150,000 people in January of 2017. February will be coming out. We'll have those stats uh, later um, this week. And it continues to be a vital tool in spreading awareness about legalized slavery and human trafficking. Uh, Of course, we'll have a writer of the 21st century, Underground Railroad, and our abolitionist in profile is Sojourner Truth, who was recently mentioned by the new CEO of USA, Inc., Donald Trump, in comments on black history. So, again, my name is Scotty Reed, uh, riding shotgun. Uh, with us is Johanan, uh, Eliah. Uh, greetings to you, bro. Uh, please go ahead with your uh, opening comments for our listeners tonight. Peace, peace. Good to be here. Good to be here. Max Parthas, I know you out there. If you can hear us now or if you hear this in the future, peace to you and to the family. And definitely, uh, I know you got everything you got to get straightened out and whatnot. We'll have you back with us soon. Um, I believe the guest that uh, Max had set up, if I read his message to me correctly, was uh, Brother Muhadin uh, Dava, who, if it is indeed him, you know, his, uh, his, his, um, abolitionist and revolutionary stock just continues to rise as you saw the videos uh of him snatching that confederate flag out that fool's hand uh just a couple of days ago so 
Um, if that is indeed who I believe that's who Max I told do, me was um, coming on. I, well, I, I did make a request to Max to invite um, mm -hmm. him on or to get in touch with mm -hmm. me to do an interview. But um, we were all supposed to have another guest um, because okay. we were discussing whether or not we want to have two guests on the same program. And I was like, I don't have a problem with it. Um, it's about gathering that testimony and those field reports mm -hmm. uh, from the people out there in the field. So I do believe we have Brother DeBaha on the line. But let me say again, if the other guest um, whom I was told about by um, uh, the sister running millions, uh, organizing the uh, millions for prisoners, human rights march, which is coming up on mm -hmm. August the 19th. She kind of actually clued me to this person because she heard about this person was coming on and she was just, uh, um, you know, giving me some background. So she, if she's uh -huh. on the line, if she's listening, sorry, again, nobody could convey your name to me. Uh, perhaps you're one of those people who, who uh, prefers to work in anonymity. But if you're out there, please join us at, at any time. Um, yes. So without further delay, uh, you just had Brother uh, Johanna just uh, tell us, you know, about Brother DeBaha, who's been uh, on the program before talking about abolitionism. Uh, confirmed on air that he is, in fact, the abolitionist in the context that slavery was never abolished and human trafficking continues and the United States continues to profit off of bodies. So without further cool. delay, let's uh, go ahead and welcome on Brother Muhuddin DeBaha. Welcome. Are you with us, brother? Blessings, blessings. Peace, brother. I'm loud and clear, man. How y'all feeling? Oh man, I feel I'm feeling uh, I'm feeling empowered. It's it's not just right. me and Scotty out here talking about it tonight. You know, it's not just the usual the usual suspects. We got us a rebel with us. We got a bandit with us. Hey man, <laughs> we we trying to learn how to do it the best way. You know, we got to learn right, how to right. respond in the moments to let them know that we know what's going on and. That's right. really kind of the stage that we're at uh, without organizing is really trying to develop the eyes to see uh, who's moving and how because it's not just happening uh, when, when there is uh, brick walls up and bars. Um, it's happening with blue lights and it's happening in schoolhouses and it's happening at workplaces. And mm -hmm. so we got to develop our vision and our discernment to be able to start to interrupt it where it's happening. So... That's kind of where we're at, you know. Well, Brother Dubai, hi, hi, again, welcome back to uh, New Abolitionist Radio. Um, I, Johanna mentioned that uh, recent act of abolitionism and that war that's out there, uh, you were recently uh, videotaped uh, 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 snatching, uh, taking down the slaver's flag uh, after uh, your group was being antagonized by these people. And I want to get into the details of that later. This was a Brie Newsome event. For those who don't remember Brie Newsome, she's a sister from Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, she's the one who scaled the uh, flagpole to pull down the slaver's flag, also known as the Confederate battle flag or a variation of those flags uh so um what happened was there were from what my perspective and what i could gather was that there was a Bree newsome event uh this was a scheduled event i imagine people had to get the permits uh, necessary in order to have this gathering and for some reason um somebody thought it'd be a good idea to grant another permit 
uh, to a a slavers flag group, and you know not just that they are a flag group, but supporters of slavery and white supremacy. And I thought that was kind of kind of um, possibly done on purpose, you know, just to antagonize. And so we saw you in the video. Um, people calling you uh, uh, athletic, uh, like you might, you know, play be pretty good out there on that court because I've seen you sky pretty high trying to pull down that slaver's <laughs> flag, you know. And uh, so, yeah, can you tell us uh, uh, about that? And we saw you were arrested, and I was immediately asking, you know, is anybody working to get this brother out? And it was good to see that you were out in short order. Most definitely, most definitely. Well, it's all teamwork. Uh, the whole announcement of Bree coming to Charleston really shook some of the core of the Confederacy. Now, the Confederacy down here, they have um, offices, political offices. They're sitting as uh, presidents of colleges. Um, one college in particular was the College of Charleston. So the College of Charleston actually invited Bree to come down and give this speech. Um, in between time, from her confirming coming, the South Carolina Secessionist Party started harassing her. They started uh, finding documents and, and uh, putting in FOIA information to figure out how much the college was paying her, since the college does have some public funds going on. Um, and then they decided to come to town three or four days before, on the 19th in particular, to start flagging all around Charleston. So they brought their trucks in. Um, they started like raising flags on top of uh, garages, on top of Francis Marion Hotel. They raised a flag. Like they were claiming their spots, you know, and they knew what they what they were doing, you know, it was pure intimidation. Um, we have to remember the president of uh, College of Charleston is Glenn McConnell, so he's an open or vowed secessionist, open and vowed um, supporter of the Confederacy, and he's president of that college. And so, if we want to start to think about who made the call to allow uh, anti Bree Newsom protests to happen right across the street from where she was going to speak, you know, that's where the call came from and so we're going to be pushing on that and getting the students on campus organized to to hold um that president accountable um because you know in in the end you know he put everybody at danger you know you invite somebody to come in to give a talk at your college but you invite um some racists to be across the street to antagonize and to intimidate you know so we're going to be pushing that and seeing uh because i want to get those charges dropped and so when we got out there there was this um um this European descendant brother uh, with a bunch of rings on and um, I don't even know, man, just looking out of sorts, pacing back and forth, and he was on the phone. And so we just started telling him and just started listening to him, just like, you know, in his space, you know, just like really trying to dig out what's going on because we knew they were coming, but we didn't know who was coming. You know, they don't come with their flag already out. You know, they come in case out the spot. And so we were with him for a good little minute, man, um, and the, the captain of uh, Captain Searson in the Charleston Police Department, you know, came by, and he apparently had his eye on all of us and uh, tried to break us up right there. Um, so we were trying to squash him and get him out of the place before he even got an opportunity to grab a flag. Um, uh, so after we got separated by the officers, um, we had our protests on the other side of the street, and it was a counter-protest, so we organized it just to counter the secessionists uh, and also to, to do security to make sure that everybody that was going to go into the Breeze uh, space felt safe and felt like they were taken care of. Um, so we met both of those goals. But then, you know, as you know, we're politicking with the elders and, and building, 
you know, right out of this uh, parking garage, I was right across the street, comes his brother again, um, our artist Slaver, uh, with a flag. And, you know, the elders' response is what triggered me off, you know. It was like they they had a different kind of association with that symbol. Like, it was more emotional to them. And, you know, it just changed the whole vibe of my interaction with them, like, in that second. And, you know, so it was just like a trigger moment where it was like, nah, man, we're not going to allow this to happen. We're not going to allow all the little ones out here because we had little ones. We had college students. We had high school students out. We're not going to let everybody see, um, you know, this flag being raised uh, to intimidate them because that symbol has an association with an economic enterprise in which you and me were supposed to be nothing but chattel um, and, and sold and, and incarcerated and, um, you know, uh, criminalized. And that's the that's the message, and that's what that symbol uh, was communicating. They know that that symbol was communicating that. We knew that that symbol was communicating that. So part of what I'm trying to do is to, to get us to move from um, being tolerant of of slavery and being tolerant of the symbols of slavery and developing some kind of uh, sense of justice where we'll eliminate those kinds of acts of intimidation and those kinds of um, ways that it manifests in our daily life or in our, our, our cultural life or in our pop cultural life, however, however it comes, and we just start to move on it. And so that's the story right there. Johanna, did you have any questions? Just uh, taking it in, man. I mean, I can understand when you said that about it just being a, kind of an emotional uh, response that you could see in the elders themselves. I mean, that's that's really what speaks to me is is like like they say, like stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Staying in front of the information, staying in the know, staying building, staying making the connections, staying meditating on you know, the truth and the facts about our situation and our condition. I mean, all the things that you do day to day, that's what prepared you to step up and do what was needed at that time. You know, I have no doubt that all those are factors and what allowed you to be in reality and be in the moment and see what was needed and why you did it and why we see our people, you know, more often than not faced with all kind of crazy conditions and in situations and, and when somebody could act, and nobody does anything because that's their first time facing reality and they don't know what to do. So I really appreciate that about what you're saying. And it just tells me that you've been a warrior. You've been in the trenches. You've been in the field. It ain't, that wasn't your first time seeing it. That's why you went about doing what you did. So salute for that. Respect. Most definitely. Most definitely. It's critical. Uh, it's 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 like the, the kids because we're dealing with some um, little ones that just got pulled off a school bus in North Charleston um and then put in jail one little one that's still detained right now um six of them got arrested because they stood up for each other when the officers started grabbing them and whatnot but the little ones they have that spirit of righteousness and that spirit of justice and that spirit of self-determination now that's the opposite of the spirit of someone who's enslaved the, the spirit of someone who's enslaved is they're going to take their beatings or they're going to teach their children how to how to act in a certain way so they don't cross any lines because we were taught how to exist within the slave system. And that's really critical for us to really get a sense of in the way that we're interacting with our children and we're letting them know how to build and move in society. We don't want to socialize them into slavery. 
but that's what we're doing. Every time we have the talk, we're socializing them into how to interact with slave patrol. We're socializing them in how to, to not stand up for themselves, um, how to not interrupt this system that is taking them and their friends uh, and their uncles, you know, and their fathers and their mothers away from them. We're not teaching them how to interrupt that. We're teaching them how to be okay with that. And then maybe uh, at the most, maybe we get a lawyer and we'll fight the case in, in the slave courts, you know. And so the level of action that we're taking is insufficient right now for socializing our youth into something that's different than what they're being socialized into. They're being socialized into slavery, just like we've always been socialized into slavery. Until we're socialized into freedom, this is what we're going to get by default. Part of what we're experiencing is, especially with the youth in, um, in uh, like high school, where they have SROs and, and slave catchers around them all day monitoring their behavior, you know, when I'm talking to them, like, listen, you guys have been to DJJ, you've been to uh, the detention centers, they look the same, you know, it's the same architecture, the same little rooms that you go in that have a little window where everybody can look in, but you can't look out and see what's going on. The architecture of control is there, but because you're told that something different is happening uh, in that building, that you're being educated, everybody thinks it's different. Like it's not that you're actually incarcerated and there are correctional officers walking around the halls um, monitoring your behavior and, and roughing you up if you step out of line or even taking you and, and incarcerating you. Uh, if, if you break some uh, school rules or, or some, some laws that they have set in place. So the control and the confinement of our behavior, uh, and the surveillance upon our being, the feeling of being watched, period, our youth are being socialized into that 13 years in the public education system. The whole architecture is setting it up for them to be accepting it. And so I see the youth that are coming out that are being institutionalized, and they don't feel like anything's wrong with that. That's what I feel like we're up against the greatest right now. It's more than the symbols. We are actually getting socialized into the reality in 2017, not only to accept it, but then to rap about it and then to, to almost glorify it as if it's something that, that we, can, we can now just reflect on and laugh about, as if it's a joke that you're getting some time and you're going to be taken away from your children, as if it's some badge of honor. So we got it all twisted in our head right now, and it's and it's really because um, we haven't educated our children and socialized them into freedom. Um, this is Scotty again. Uh, I appreciate that, and also I want to take it back to you. You mentioned symbolism and us accepting these uh, uh, symbols of slavery. You know, I heard uh, John Sims, who's an artist, and he made a a. Um, track called Burn and Bury talking about the slaver's flag, but he called it visual terrorism. So when you talk about the elders feeling emotional about it, that's the type of emotion what that flag uh, represents to certain segment uh, our elders mostly uh, when they are uh, confronted, you know, with that flag by a bunch of racist uh, haters who would have them in slavery. Um, so I appreciate that about the symbolism and, and we do have to not, we have to stop accepting the symbolism because I mean, it, it really is when I go to, not that I go there often, but I've been there enough to see that Confederate soldiers monument 
right there on taxpayer property. Our family pays property taxes, you know, and we're paying to maintain this monument to a bunch of vile, uh, sick people who want who wanted to keep people in in chains, and then to really speak to their mentality of doing the history on Gaston County, North Carolina. There were only about twelve families that actually enslaved Africans, but sent over a thousand of these crackers into the Confederacy. That's just ignorant. You know, these bunch of poor farmers begging, starving, hunting squirrels, living off squirrels and begging rich white people to hunt on their land. But yet you would give your life to put somebody in, in, in slavery. No, we we cannot be tolerant of these symbols. To be tolerant of the symbols is to be tolerant of the things that they stand for, uh, in, in my opinion. So I think a lot of people just don't understand. Well, we understand. Like people talk about having a first black president and the power of, of symbolism. Well, I would disagree with that, but again, speaks to, you know, the power of, of perception and what have you. And so you mentioned all of the people who are office holders, politicians who make laws and legislate. Do you not think that they, and I'm saying this rhetorically, do you not think that they want to keep, continue to legislate slavery? So, so I, you know, that piece on the symbolism is very, very important and, and people should not underestimate the power of propaganda. Most definitely. Well, we need our own propaganda. Like, that's what I feel when I say that we're not socializing our children into freedom. What I, what I mean is what, where are our symbols of freedom? Where's, where's the counter flag to it? Where's the, where's the school that is not going to allow correctional officers to walk around um, the building where education is supposed to happen? You know, we're we're little we're we're in a point where our words might not even be enough because even though you might be educated on the slave system, if you're socialized into it, you won't you won't have the the intuitive reasoning and you won't have the instinctive or the instinct to to resist it and and we become complacent and we fall into it. And so it's habits of behavior, you know. Freedom has a certain kind of behavior that comes along with it. It has a certain kind of language and approach to authority that comes along with it. It has a certain approach to law that comes along with it. Uh, it has a, a certain approach to even knowledge and reason because we, we're looking at a, an economic system. So now we're talking about the schooling that has been created to support the economic system that was dependent upon exploiting uh, people's labor and exploiting and moving um, people around in, in human trafficking and then exploiting the land and exploiting other people's resources. A whole economic system supported by an education system that says that it's okay. That's where you learn that it's okay. If there was something different in our education, literally if we were able to offer courses on abolition, you know, if we had the symbols of abolition, if we had abolitionist communities, if we had abolitionist alternatives to incarceration, um, now we're presenting an alternative uh, viewpoint and an alternative reality for folks to be able to move into because I don't think it's enough for us to just educate them. We have to actually socialize into freedom because we've been so socialized into slavery.
You mentioned education, and that's important because a lot of uh, pro-slavery, or I shouldn't say pro-slavery, uh, yeah, pro-slavery, uh, but um, just teach deception where I just it just came to me. I need to contact, even though I don't have any children in high school or middle school right now, I have uh, grandchildren that's in elementary school, but we need to be going to these school board meetings and demanding that they stop teaching that slavery was abolished in 1865 exactly. by the 13th exactly. Amendment. There should be no history teacher, no history professor still teaching that slavery was abolished when the 13th Amendment directly contradicts that that notion and lie, but the whole symbolism of indoctrinating our children into accepting, accepting this, a lot of it is done through deception, the symbolism of forcing children. Even though you can't do it by law, you do it by peer pressure and bullying to force children to pledge allegiance, uh, uh, citing a, a anthem that I call the slaver's anthem. It was written by a slaver celebrating the deaths of enslaved people who dare to stand up and fight for their freedom. And and so, again, symbolism is, is all around us in terms of supporting slavery. And, um, Johanna, did you have anything? Okay. Uh, Just, okay. Yeah, I was muted. I'm sorry. Yeah, with, with this whole thing, what you're saying with the symbolism, I mean, I'm appreciating what I'm hearing on that as well. And uh, like you said, something I caught what you said is very important. Uh, Brother Mordine is being that even if you're educated about this, and I think that's really where we're at, you know, social media has definitely brought us to that point where the proof, people don't so much associate the proof being in the pudding, the, the actual actions following what the rhetoric, you know, is, is claiming. So you got a, a lot of people that the extent of what they're doing is discussing something in social media or acknowledging something with a like or a share through social media. Um, and even in some places where, which are being becoming considered to be um, strongholds of, of, of resistance, um, as we've seen in the cities, you know, whether it be Ferguson or going to Baltimore or uh, North Carolina or Dallas, I mean, where we've seen people kind of have their, their moments of uprise um, is still being a matter of people's, saying that they got the information they know well we know what's happening we can prove what's happening you see what's happening but like you said with with it being a matter of socializing the the reality the behavior you know as you mentioned with the school resource officers you know i read that years ago that those people are not there to enforce to help the school enforce any school rules they are there strictly to see if there is anything that they can do as far as enforcing the law um, and that's what led to the school to prison pipeline boom that, you know, as it still continues to, to go wildly out of control uh, because they're not there to help the schools in any kind of capacity. They're there to recruit for the jail systems. So I really appreciate that point. What you're saying, I mean, it's not just knowing it, but actually living in a way that does not support the police state, that does not support the prison slave industry, that does not support the businesses that drive their profit and justify their existence from Wall Street on down through slave labor that they get from the 13th Amendment legalized slavery. I mean, it's all such a connected system in this country and in this reality. So that is a very important point that I appreciate that you made. It's not just knowing, but it's like being aware 
of what you do as an individual to either support it or ignore it and allow it to just keep going on or to do whatever you can to dismantle it with your actions, with your actual way you live, choosing to live, to sacrifice personally, to put yourself at risk personally, to do whatever you can do personally as an individual and lead others in that same effort or join with others in those same kinds of efforts to actually change the reality of the situation, not just feel good because you talked about it. Most definitely, man. I remember when we had a, a wonderful experience. We had Movement for Black Lives. We had about 2,000 organizers in Cleveland, and we had a, a young man, maybe like a 14-year-old, um, that was a, uh, there was a, a catcher that was on patrol, and um, they got the young man like off a bus, and we were having our conference, I think maybe like two or three blocks down the street, and somebody saw what was going on, and they alerted us, and so like hundreds of us uh, just ran down the street. And this little man was in the back of this police car, so we surrounded this this car, um, and we wouldn't move. So we're getting pepper sprayed, whatever. But we we held the line. Ambulance came and whatnot. We had people going in there, but his he went home with his mom that day because of the actions that we took to interrupt the human trafficking system. That this human trafficking system is happening every day. If we actually take the actions to interrupt it in our communities every day, I think it's going to really help folks understand what what we mean by by uh, abolition and what we mean by by acting as abolitionists that are resisting uh, slavery and that are resisting uh, any kind of systems of human trafficking, uh, especially uh, patrol and custody operations for profit. So we're all complicit and that it's happening all around us all the time. And because uh, we're not interrupting it, I think it's hard for folks to hear the reasoning um, because they don't see the action to back the reasoning. Um, one more thing I want to uh, say. Um, I want to take a short pause on every half hour until um, we close out the program. We will be highlighting Sojourner Truth as our abolitionist in profile tonight. But, again, this is the first month. Uh, first day of Women's History Month, so we want to highlight, uh, take this time to highlight a abolitionist uh, because women played a prominent role in the abolitionist movement past, and I believe they play a prominent role uh, in today's new abolitionist uh, movement. Uh, Sarah Parker Redman was born in 1824. She died in 1894. She was in a uh, black lecturer, abolitionist, and agent of the American Anti-Slavery Society. She was born of free black people. She made her first speech against slavery when she was only 16 years old. As a young woman, Redmond delivered anti-slavery speeches throughout the Northeast United States. She traveled to England to gather support for the abolitionist cause in the United States. When she was older, she became a physician in Italy where she stayed in until her death. So new abolitionist radio salute Sarah Parker Remond. Um on salute. the last um point that I want to make about symbolism and this also ties into this being Women's History Month. Um prior to, uh, the last couple of weeks of February, I read an article about the overseers who are in charge of maintaining 
and welcoming all of the visitors to visit Thomas Jefferson's Slave Plantation Museum, which is in Virginia, which is where he, he is from. And I read this article that said, talk about symbolism, that they were going to include Sally Hemings rape chambers, um, you know, in the uh, slave museum. Of course, they are not going to put this display or title this display as Sally Hemings rape chambers. Um, in fact, she could not consent to a sexual relationship with Thomas Jefferson, who owned her. And for a lot of people who don't know, they this escapes them or this is left out. Sally Hemings was actually the half-sister of Thomas Jefferson's wife. She was the daughter of Thomas Jefferson's father-in-law, another slaver who Thomas Jefferson bought this, bought Sally Hemings from and made her his sex slave. So, I mean, just speak, I mean, can anybody speak to the audacity or I, I'm, I'm having trouble finding words to describe just how sick this is that they would include her rape chambers as, you know, trying to uh, uh, push this myth out here that they had a romantic relationship, okay? Uh, this woman was groomed to be a sex slave, and Thomas Jefferson took full advantage of the fact that she could not consent and how sick of these people up here at, uh, I forget the name of his plantation, but to those people that's overseeing it now to include this as a as something to be put on display. Well, I would say, yes, display it, but make sure there's a sign given the context that this woman could not consent. And therefore, she was a a a a, um, a captive of his uh, being sexually tortured. Um, fellas, y'all got any comments on that? Okay, I mean, I I will definitely like to hear our guest speak on it first if he got something he wants to say to it. But I mean, you know, for uh, sure. What for you? Sure. Yeah, go ahead, brother. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the private property piece, the, the historical realities, and being able to to situate ourselves within them, and then being able to also, um, like, we have a sister down here. We have plantations all over the place, and we have a couple historical reenactors that. We'll, we'll dress in and and take on the role. And for a long time, we had a lot of big pushback against her and and folks that were doing this kind of reenactment. And then she sat down and she told us, she was like, even though that, that these folks had to play these certain roles or they had that kind of existence um, in the eyes of the people that were in the, in the power, they still had their own humanity. You know, they still had their own complexity to their being. Um, they still were being able to navigate things. And so it's difficult, I think, for us to understand how can we, how can we still grant humanity to a sister, even though she's in a position like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, how can we still empathize, not only have compassion, but, but even just imagine her strengths to be able to do whatever she, whatever else she did, and, and to be able to kind of, you know, move and, and keep her humanity intact. I guess that's the way that I choose to think about, you know, our ancestors in that way is just, you know, honoring and, and putting putting their spirit up, you know, because they're survivors and, and they struggled and they brought us through. And so, you know, it's hard for me to just really, really dig into 
like story that that is centering um, a central figure of power and and not not really recognizing hum- the humanity of our ancestors. Indeed, indeed. I mean, again, that speaks to. I mean, I can hear what you're saying with that. It speaks again to just acknowledging the humanity, you know, of our people right now. As you're talking about the children and what we're showing them and teaching them. I mean, it's it's a commitment to uh, a commitment to recognizing the realities of the situation that, you know, at the end of the day, that's what we are is, is, is humans trying to, trying to be a part of this. And, you know, without access to resources, without, you know, any kind of a a control of, of your future, of your destiny. I mean, from cradle to grave, the way that you're born, the way that you're handled coming into this, you know, into the society birthed in and the way that you, you pass and how your remains are handled. I mean, all of it being decided outside of your own, reality your own choice your own culture your own you know situation so i mean again i can see what you're saying with that and 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 i definitely agree uh my thoughts on it like you said scotty i mean for it to be a, a national monument and a, and a national treasure and you know all of the 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 coveting and idolizing that the society is continually encouraged to do like we just mentioned in this segment previous talking about the symbolism I mean, you got this controversy, so-called controversy. It's all manufactured, but with the uh, old dude, the uh, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos or whatever, that got you know so-called kicked off of working for Breitbart because of his comments about pedophilia. And we see that this is coming, you know, into the mainstream. When just a few years ago they were about to release the DSM-5 update, and I remember uh, brother uh, Dr. Umar talking about the DSM-5 when it comes out, they'd be pushing to normalize pedophilia and and zoophilia and get these things in the mainstream like they did with homosexuality in the dsm-4 before or three before it so these are all like multi-leveled efforts to control the reality drive the society uh define the science you know it's just all systems of control on so many levels and all the way back from then you know when he was raping that young girl who was probably herself created. I mean, obviously, I doubt very seriously that her mother, the slave woman, was in some kind of romantic situation with any kind of power or control over Jefferson's father-in-law. So she was raped herself to create a child that would grow to be raped. And, I mean, just on and on. And you see this guy in the modern times, so-called kicked out of a position, you know, of, of some kind of influence or whatever as a contributor on this blog, as a writer, as a speaker, because of his comments. But I mean, honestly, if you're being straight about America, I mean, he's mimicking or speaking on the, the, I mean, I couldn't see Thomas Jefferson disagreeing with anything he said, because hell, we got the evidence of the fact of the truth that he did it. So, I mean, where's the line drawn with these people? This is what they believe in. This is what they do. And they are willing to walk around like Yosemite Sam and shoot shit up and, and talk about my country and the brown people and the Muslims and talk all this trash, and they'd steady raping and robbing and sitting on everybody else's throats. So, I mean, you know, I wouldn't be upset if, if uh, Monticello was dismantled, to be honest with you. I mean, I don't know what we would be losing to let that go. That is not some historic piece that you would want to keep in perpetuity and keep Sally Hemings rape chambers, you know, set up for another 100 years or 200 years, my ancestors on down the line still looking at that same mess. Right. It normalizes it. Um, 
Brother Dubaha, um, I've been reading um, in your home state of South Carolina that they have been screening the documentary film 13th. And for those listening right now, Netflix has given permission for you to organize these public screenings free of charge uh, for the film, the documentary, uh, the 13th. And so uh, where uh, what? Obviously, you know, again, we heard the news report of the college campus that held that screening, which was led by millennials. And shout out to the millennials, as I heard people bad-mouthing y'all today because y'all wouldn't fall in line and vote for old Hillary and whatnot. And y'all rejected her and her role in, in slavery in modern times. Uh, so what what's, what do you see in terms of growth in, in the abolitionist movement in your locality, Brother DeBaha? Most definitely. A lot of excitement around the movie. The movie has been really helpful. Uh, we've done two screenings ourselves, uh, one in a community center, one in a church. Um, both of them were really robust discussions afterward. I think that that is the strategic advantage that abolitionists have right now, is to show the movies, but to control the narrative after the movie, but to have like uh, the power to frame the discussion after the movie. So everyone got that good context of of slavery being legalized but they don't have the context of what it looks like in their life and and uh, maybe they don't they don't have the um uh, experience having a conversation about it and so part of what we're doing strategically is actually having and modeling that conversation after the movie so we can kind of talk about uh, again the school to prison pipeline its role in slavery so we can talk about what's going on with the economy um, the, the offshoring of jobs in particular and its relationship to uh, the growth of uh, the mass incarceration system or the slavery imprisonment system. Um, the GDP grew at the same time, and so we're, we're really talking about a time where there's, there's profit being made and there's enough um, machines and automation that can turn profit um, a lot faster than utilizing human labor. Now we have an excess capital uh, labor market. And so we get to talk about that uh, after 13th because it really brings it up as, as we, we, you know, we look at the economic beginnings of, of the slave trade. And when every, whenever the technology changes, our position in it, um, especially people that are enslaved within it, our position in it shifts. And so from the agrarian into the cotton gin, into factory labor, into uh, dealing with offshoring of factories and, and, and then the rise of uh, private prisons and, and more incarceration to, in order to deal with this excess labor market that our labor, if you will, that didn't, that is unneeded anymore. And so we're asking ourselves the question now uh, and this is kind of the edge of our conversation, is what are we going to do in a, in a tech-based edge or tech-based age where we can produce so much and every year um, uh, as a society, as a civilization, we can produce more than we can ever consume. So we don't, we don't need people working anymore. So now we're talking about a leisure society. And then when you, when you talk about a leisure society and you look at, the, the slave system within it, it's pure trafficking of humans for, for profit. There's no other social purpose that it serves. 
It doesn't serve a social purpose of, of getting free labor anymore because we're going to have that, that, uh, that, that tech-based automatization that's going to really eliminate the need for that. Well, you might have people uh, clicking on computer buttons, and you might have people that are incarcerated now uh, actually taking on these software jobs and whatnot. I feel like that might be where we're headed with it, but we want to keep our eye on how our position shifts when the, when the uh, economy shifts. And so that we know that the tech-based economy is shifting everything globally, and we're trying to keep an eye on how it's shifting um, our, our position within it. Johanan, did you have anything? I mean, again, I just hear what you, what you're saying, and just thinking again of, like we talked about in the beginning, with the with the moment arising for grabbing that flag, you know, staying ready so you don't have to get ready. I mean, our our position in the domestic colony uh, post uh, so-called emancipation has had had a brief spark, but I mean, up to the beginnings of Jim Crow, and it just seems we've been ever since on a in a defensive posture reacting to what happens after we allow, you know, the others to dictate what's going to go on. And, you know, then we trying to figure out well, how to react to it. And, and to be honest, within a, a reactionary stance, you're only going to have a handful of people that are still, that are true to the cause that are true to, to the blood, to, to themselves, you know, to, they have their own best interest as a collective at heart. The, the majority of people within, you know, the, the so-called minority or the oppressed group who are reacting to what the dominant culture is giving them, those people are going to look for the best way to improve their own personal individual situation at the table, how to get some more crumbs for themselves. They're not willing to sacrifice for the greater good for the collective. So, I mean, when I hear you talk about that as far as getting positioned for what's coming, you know, that's that's definitely – abolitionist strategizing uh, as well as just common sense and wisdom and being, like you said, walking in righteousness just as a man in your time on this earth. So, I mean, again, a salute. I appreciate what, you, what you're talking about. Same, same. The, the wage slavery is a really interesting element um, because now it allows, um, and I think that slavery has always allowed someone to accumulate enough capital that they can then own slaves or they can then uh, employ slaves, if you will. And so we have the same kind of uh, capitalist thinking that's infected our community real deeply, where even on the underground economy, you know, there are people taking falls and doing time for other people because uh, essentially they're wage slaves, or they're, they're commissioned um, to be indentured servants for a certain time, or they're fronted a package and now they're in debt. And so this, this relationship between debt and wage and slavery, I think, is something that, that we really uh, are going to have. Um, we're really going to be called to, to grant clarity and to bring clarity for, for folks on so we don't participate in systems that uh, are uh, supporting slavery. And so this, this whole economic system was built off of it. So this whole economic system, right. the way that we play into it, is actually supporting it. And so we really have to reevaluate ourselves economically. Um, so, you, but I mean, that's the thing is that is, is this, there's no existence in history or no record that I've heard of anyway, or found if anybody hearing this can correct me, I'm welcome to it, but capitalism cannot exist without a slave 
under under base without a slave foundation. It, there has to be an exploitable you, labor you know, resource, yo, just like all the rest of the resources that are going to be there. You know, Johanan, um, I engineer uh, several programs. You know that. But last night mm -hmm. I was engineering yes, the program Cold Breakers, and they were talking about capitalism. And so I had opportunity to ask a question. So I said, when was the first time you heard of the word capitalism or uh, capital, which is a variation? Well, obviously, capitalism is a variation of capital, the root word. And, and so the first time I read it, Thomas Jefferson again, writing letters to his fellow slavers, talking about his formula uh, to increase his capital by increasing the number of victims on his, born on his plantation. Um, and he mm -hmm. referred to them as capital. But one of the hosts last night, he goes by T, uh, said he looked up the root word of capital, and it literally means head count, counting bodies. Mm -hmm. Well, yep. There you go. That, that would make sense. That would make sense. The the kind of bonds, um, you know, that's that's the way they were traded, and so we still have the stock market in which uh, the trading is still happening. So the capital market, uh, the head market, is still happening, but it's it's abstracted um, a, a couple of times. So the wage earners feel like they're not a part of it, but on a on a balance sheet, your human resources. They're just head counts, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's the same mentality, um, but they switched up the language just enough and put in just enough incentive and just enough artificial competition and just enough artificial social mobility in there to make everybody feel like they're at different levels, that the only ones that are enslaved are the ones that are behind walls. And I think that that's, again, we got to clear and demystify all of that. Um, You brought up, the situation with the uh, students uh, being jacked up by the slave catchers down there. Uh, Strategic Melanin, who is a member of BTR community, that is the social uh, uh, media network for Black Talk Radio Network. But in response to tonight's program where we posted a media player so they could listen over there, uh, he posted this article. And this kind of speaks to another aspect of the challenges we face in new abolitionism because we got the old guard that is often trying to uh, prevent abolitionism and they're pushing reform. But uh, aspect to that story that Strategic Melanin made me aware of, um, there's an article that's coming from the Post and Courier, says civil rights leaders back North Charleston police after bus students arrest. Charleston civil rights leaders supported police officers Saturday in the wake of controversy sounding the, uh, surrounding the arrest of six North Charleston high school students. And so we have pointed out on this program that some of these old guard organizations they claim they're on the front lines. They call it civil rights. Uh, obviously, they, they don't claim to be engaged in any kind of abolitionism, but that I am not surprised when they take these sort of positions, when they're taking money and a big portion of their funding comes from banks like Wells Fargo, which is the second largest investor in, in Geo Group, um, and so when I see this, when I see these kind of stories, I'm not surprised. But I, that's pretty troubling, you know, that you got if I even if I felt like 
Du Bois might have been a little bit at fault, I wouldn't have said nothing. You know what I'm saying? I definitely never, wouldn't have came never, out man. back in those slave catchers. Never, no never. That's a really big issue uh, down here. So you're definitely reading the news from our hometown. That was like last week, two weeks ago. Um, uh, so Black Lives Matter, the way that we've been organizing, we've been in opposition to them. And it's been two weeks of organizing. So we went to the bond hearing for the little ones. We've been organizing the parents and the families of the little ones that are locked up. Uh, we've been organizing allies and community. Well, we have found, and, and we, we don't put the civil rights leaders, whoever they are, they done backtracked by now. We don't put them in the dirt already. So they, they're not even trying to come out in public with some craziness like that because of the way that we've been organizing. We got everybody who's talking about restorative justice, everybody who's talking about dismantling the school-to-prison pipeline, everybody who's talking about alternatives to incarceration. We have them aligned in a coalition, and then on uh, March 20th, we're going to be doing a, a forum at College of Charleston, actually, and uh, we're bringing up our youth, and uh, I'll be on a panel just really trying to break down the abolitionist point of view on why we need to make sure that these slave catchers are away from our children all the time if we're actually serious about having a conversation about dismantling the school-to-prison pipeline. The function of the civil rights leaders is similar to the function of the traveling preacher, if you will, uh, during the, the chattel times. You know, that, that preacher comes by, he says, I hear y'all, but here's the word, and you just need to watch your behavior and you pray about it. That's it. But it's your behavior that's the problem. If you stop doing what you're doing, then you're going to be okay. And so Brother Dubai here, yeah, I got to stop you right there because that's no coincidence that you bring this up because I just put a meme <laughs> out in response to people talking about, you know, the Muslims used to enslave us. I said all three major religions supported slavery. And in the uh, book of Colossians, in the Bible is where you have the apostle Paul who meets a a a victim of slavery. Uh, one, I forget how to pronounce his name. Um, but but he has run away from the person enslaving him. He ends up in jail. Paul's in jail. And then Paul converts him to Christianity, then tells him to stop running away from his master. Be a good slave. That's being a good Christian is to be a helpmate to your master instead of running away. And then he wrote a letter to Philemon, who was the Christian enslaver, telling him to stop mistreating uh, uh, um, the um, uh, person's name, I forget their name, but uh, tells them to stop mistreating them, but at no times tells him that, hey, this your brother in Christ. You need to set them free because Christ came to set the captives free. And so, uh, please, can, I'm glad you brought that up about that aspect of pre-1865 uh, chattel slavery as you did, because remember, Nat Turner started out that way. That's right. Yeah, very, very true, Bridget. There's a um I was I was invited to the conference of the National Black Churches this year and um they they, they were silly enough to put me on a panel and um <laughs> there was um something around Genesis. Um I forget the verse, but essentially um the story was, you know, um they were running out of food um in in Egypt and uh the Pharaoh uh, had had you know all the food and you know he was just kicking it and there was just a big drought and so everybody came and they sold their animals to Pharaoh and, and then um, uh, later on 
um, they ran out of uh, uh, they, the food that Pharaoh gave them, and then they came and they sold their labor to Pharaoh. So they sold themselves into slavery, um, and then uh, they ended up selling their land just so they could eat. But the person that was helping the transaction between Pharaoh and the people was the priest class, and the priest class were, were the ones that were able to actually maintain their land. And so in the same kind of nonprofit uh, tax-free way right now, the churches are able to always maintain some sense of status, even though everybody else around them might be suffering. And so it's, it's really important. Uh, I would love to, to do a more deeper analysis on the role of, of the priest class and the role of uh, church and church folk and pastors in the maintenance of a slave society. Mm. Wow. Hey, we've come to the top of the hour um, Brother Dubaha, I, I don't know if you have anything else uh, that you have scheduled, but you certainly spend a, a lot of time with us. You are welcome to stay on past the break, but we're at the top of the hour. Uh, we do want to take a station identification break and invite our listeners to call in if you have any questions or comments on the issue of 21st century slavery and human trafficking. Our telephone number is um 866-510-8665109025 that's 866-510-9025 hit star star to unmute yourself uh, we're speaking with uh the Charleston Black Lives Matter um representative i believe he's uh, also the chapter president uh brother Mah- uh, man i always butcher your name brother uh, say say your first name for me again yeah, it's Muhyiddin. Uh, All right, Dubaha. All right, so if y'all have any questions for him, uh, please get those in after we come back from this break. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio on Black Talk Radio Network. Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. And welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio in recognition of Women's History Month. We want to highlight some of our past uh, women who played a prominent role in abolitionism. I, I would say they played a uh, bigger role as a gender than anyone than anyone but of course it's it's not about you know gender is about slavery and it's about ending it but women have always played a prominent role in our families and in our movements so we want to recognize at this time abby kelly who like many other abolitionists abby kelly later abby keller 
Kelly Foster was raised a Quaker, influenced by a speech by William Lloyd Garrison. She became an abolitionist and soon was appointed as a delegate to the first National Anti-Slavery Convention of American Women in New York City. Kelly was also in the thick of the debate about the involvement of women within the abolitionist movement. The Garrisonians favored the activism of women, but the more traditional forces thought that they should be kept quiet. According to the National Abolition Hall of Fame, when she was elected to the business committee at the annual meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society in 1840, Lewis Tappan and other opponents walked out to found the American and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society. Even reformers have their prejudices. Uh, Abby Kelly says the says the nation. Excuse me, Abby Kelly says the National Abolition Hall of Fame is most remembered for her advocacy of come outerism, the belief that abolitionists must leave churches. Look, I didn't script this program, y'all. Uh, the belief that abolitionists must leave churches that did not fully condemn slavery. She eventually disowned the Society of Friends because it had violated its own professed principles on the question of slavery. Her future husband, Stephen Simmons Foster, joined her in his campaign against pro-slavery churches. I swear I did not know we was going to get on the part of, of the churches or whatnot, but this is how the universe works. Uh, fellas, did y'all have any commentary? Just building on what was already said, as far as the the priest class, I mean that's that's the thing. It's a it's an issue with trying to get through to the oppressed. Um, and I mean, I, I just if I knew, obviously, I would you know write the book on it and and would do tours and teachings and break the chains of people's mental slavery that that they still continue to use this as a safe consider this as a safe space for themselves when really all it's doing is just perpetuating their suffering. I mean, it's giving them a place where they can try to ignore, uh, try to create. I mean, it's, it's like the alternate, what do you say, alternative facts. I mean, that didn't shock me when I heard that uh, put into the lexicon under the Trump administration. I mean, I really just looked at all the things that I've always considered to be alternative facts. You know what the truth is, but people want to believe something else that does not challenge them that does not put them in a situation where they have to come into direct conflict and and fight directly with the people that are stomping out their lives so uh that is an interesting turn to to you know see that d demonstrated in the biblical history and then also in the current situation and how not much has changed something that's in the bible says it ain't nothing new under the sun i mean this is the same types of systems that have been used so why change them because people still ain't got wise to it or still haven't decided to fight it so as long as it works i guess keep using it and keep rewarding it and, and keep separating people along these various corridors so it's it's a sad reality man yeah it's it's a science you know they really they really have um learned how to perfect it you know the the system of control that uh will give a certain group of you enough and i'll give you so much that you you won't buck up against me because you can't afford to use lose what i gave you because now you got status now you got land now you got you know you have things that you feel like you can't afford to lose and so you control that class and and, and you know help that class control an, another class within the slavery system 
So one of the things that manifested uh, during this North Charleston uh, incident that we had and the civil rights leaders and some of the more respectable uh, folks in the community uh, just came up and they, they were really they were really appalled at their children's behavior. Um, they were talking so much about their children's behavior. Um, and the question that we posed to them was, you know, is child abuse not child abuse anymore if a slave catcher is doing it? Because, you know, right. an, any adult that touches a child, that grabs a child like that, you know, we're locking that person up. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's child abuse clear and through and through. But when a slave catcher is doing it, oh, that child should have been respectful. Or he should have just right. been quiet. You know what I'm saying? Like, now we're making all these excuses for the slave catchers. That's what I'm saying. It's like, we've been socialized into it so deeply that we don't even know how to have a conversation about freedom and how to have a conversation about how to protect our children from slavery. True. So, I mean, okay, with all of this, though, bringing, oh, I was going to say, bringing it back around, I mean, you know, it's not necessarily bringing it around because we have never really left. It's just become such a higher, I don't even want to say higher level, but just more uh, intimate, like deeply engaged conversation on slavery and modern abolitionism than what, you know, the casual listener or somebody just coming on board with what we're talking about maybe did not expect to hear. I mean, you know, the headlines that go along with today's news are all symptoms of this root issue that we're talking about. And on this deep, on this deep of a level, you know, when we talk about the prison stocks are up 140% since right before the election, when we saw the Bureau of Prisons put out a memo that said that the government was going to end, uh, was not going to renew private uh, setting up those contracts, that was a huge downturn for the stocks in, in all the private prisons because they couldn't we saw them incur uh i'm sorry bro but your line is going in and out your line is going in and out let me try to mute you and i'll try to clear that up okay um and and let's see all right go ahead johan and i'm sorry about that but you were breaking up i want people to understand what you're saying okay but no i'm just just saying that everything we're talking about for the casual listener, hopefully I'm more clear now. You know how it gets, man, yes. when I start going on my thing. <laughs> I always get cut off. But uh, the casual listener that maybe is listening to what we're talking about as far as, like, the children and the normalization of the behavior and the, the police handling them one way, and then you see a parent come in and discipline is, is abused, but police is, that you know, is, is, is allowed and the church saying watch your behavior. All of these things, like we're talking about, the normalization of this and the, the symbols that you see and just the way that this is so prevalent in our reality. And you may have people that think they are educated, you know, whether it's traditional college educations or, you know, lawyers and doctors and teachers and sociologists and on and on people that write books, people that make movies as we've debated about the 13th movie and talked about uh, Michelle Alexander and the new Jim Crow. I mean, these people that give these thesis on what the situations are, but are completely overlooking the real root and base of the, the, you know, the sand and the gravel that makes up the cement that is, that is the, the foundation of slavery is what we're talking about right now. What this brother is breaking down to you is talking about how a child 
grows into a society where this is normalized, where they are marginalized and it's normal, where they're being disciplined by authority figures who are the only people they know at five, six, eight, nine, twelve years old, the preacher, their mom and dad, their grandparents, the old folks in the neighborhood. They have no way of of, of disassociating their natural in, instinct towards respect, towards seeing this person and seeing them as being old and gray and they must know something. So what they're telling me, this becomes the foundation truth in their mentality. So as they do grow and go to these schools, and like you said, 13 years of normalizing corrections officers walking up and down the same hallways through the same windows, the same doors, the same locks, the same keys jangling, the same rubber boots, the same everything that they see. And then when they get in a situation where it's juvenile hall, if they get them when they're young enough, or it's jail cells, or it is an actual prison, state, private, local, whatever, all of this is a continuum of the same reality that only benefits a handful of individuals but persecutes all of us. So don't don't fall asleep on tonight's episode because we're talking about the children, because we're talking about these things that seem like they're so nuanced and minutia. This is how you put together the ingredients to cook up the whole pot that we all being poisoned by. It is absolutely cool, brother. Like I we we can't we can't jump too far because I think any abolitionist that has tried to make the case to someone cold, we know that blank stare they give us. It's like, nah, slavery ended a long time ago. It's like they're in disbelief. And it's because I think we switch and we move in the abstract so much that we can't, we, we don't bring it to, to how they're socialized actually into slavery, how they're socialized to actually not manifesting who they are, how they're socialized into accepting $7 an hour, uh, how they're socialized into accepting economic exploitation, socialized into accepting rent-seeking behavior, um, sharecropping behavior still. Like, you know, the same kind of economic uh, pieces are are still in play, and we've been socialized into them, and, and they're, they are the basis of the slavery system, of the exploitation system, and it's hard for us to see ourselves out of it. And so, it, again, it's like, me talking to high schoolers and letting them know it's like yo this is prison y'all are in a correctional institute right now you have correctional officers you can't even get up to go to the bathroom without asking anybody to go to the bathroom you know, like this is what you guys are living in but because it says school on the front of the building and because you're supposedly learning something um you know we'll ignore the fact that that you're in prison because because it says school on that on the front of the building, you know what I'm saying? It's just like that's that's how that's how deep we are into it that that we can't we can't even abstract our own our own individual existence. But symbols like the Confederate flag, those are socially created, and socially created symbols are shared, which means they they have meaning to more than just one person. And so it's not a personal, private, independent, subjective understanding of what that particular symbol means to one person. They have symbols for realities, and, and all of those symbols represent the reality that we've all shared. So whether or not we were consenting is not necessarily, you know, the issue, because we know we didn't consent to it, but we did take it in, and we were socialized by it, and, it, and we did internalize it, 
and we haven't gone through the process of, of bringing all of that funk out of us. And so that kind of uh, liberation education, uh, that kind of socializing into freedom, you know, I'm really looking forward to us figuring that out because I think as soon as we start to, to help folks give it, get a taste of what it is to be free, to live and have uh, interactions that are based upon freedom and dignity, um, that are based upon liberty and justice for all, as soon as you feel that, you know, you look back at what you were in, then you recognize, you know, what your slavery was. But uh, it's very difficult to convince a slave that they're, they're enslaved. I would like to bring our attention to the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March, which will be taking place in the fall, August 19, 2017, where abolitionists will converge on Washington, D.C. I would like to share a bit of text from I am we Ubuntu.com. Um, but if you just simply put in a search engine, Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March, you'll find, um, you know, a link to this statement I'm about to read. Uh, the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March mission statement. We seek to unite activists, advocates, prisoners, ex-prisoners, their family and friends, as well as all others committed to the fight to drastically reduce or eliminate prisons in the prison system and replace them with more humane and effective systems. Our aim is to explore the prison industrial complex for the human rights violation that it truly is. We want to challenge the ideal that caging and controlling people keeps community safe. We believe that for too long our nation has relied upon incarceration as a way to solve broader social problems to its detriment. In August of 2017 we will march on Washington to bring world attention to the continued slavery and involuntary servitude in America, enabled by the 13th Amendment and to highlight the ever-increasing movement against the prison industrial complex. Millions for prisoners human rights core demands for actions are as follows. A we demand the 13th Amendment Enslavement Clause of the United States Constitution be amended to abolish legalized slavery in America. B, we demand a congressional hearing on the 13th Amendment's Enslavement Clause being recognized as in violation of international law, the general principles of human rights, and its direct links to, one, private entities exploiting prison labor, two, Companies overcharging prisoners for goods and services. Three, private entities contracted by states, federal government to build and operate prisons. This would also include immigration detentions. Four, racial disparities in America's prison population and sentencing. Uh, five, policing the disproportionate, unaccountable killings by police in the black and brown communities. Six, felony disenfranchisement laws. Seven, Immigration and Customs enforce, Enforcement, 34,000 detention quotas. And eight, Producing the World's Largest Prison Population. So we hope that people will uh, uh, share this information. And more importantly, if you're able to participate in this Millions for Prisoners uh, March. Uh, is the word being spread in South Carolina, in, in your local area, Brother DeBaja, about the march? Most definitely, most definitely. We're going to definitely be bringing a bus up there ourselves. Um, we're definitely looking to figure out how to generate uh, the necessary energy locally. And so using the movie 13th, uh, framing the discussions ourselves, uh, we're starting to think about action 
to start to interrupt the systems of human uh, trafficking, the patrol uh, operations that lead to the custody operations. And so right now our focus is on the school-to-prison pipeline and learning how to interrupt that. But we have patrol uh, operations that we're going to have to develop tactics to interrupt. Um, and the more that we, we utilize uh, our ability to, to not only be creative in our actions, but to make sure that we're being educative and we're, we're being a role model, uh, of what kind of abolitionism uh, looks like um, in 20, uh, 2017. Uh, all of that is on our plate uh, leading up into um, this march. And so we're very excited to be participating, and, and we're definitely encouraging uh, all of our chapters and all of our comrades around the nation uh, to follow suit. Again, if anybody would like to uh, ask a question or make a comment on the topic of 21st century slavery and human trafficking, give us a call at 866-510-9025. Hit star star. We'll see you on the board. Um, we want to share just a couple of news items as we do. Uh, that is a big portion of what we've been doing for the past five years, which I did not know until recently that news reports can be used in, in, in the courts as evidence. When you have investigative journalism in these news reports, we have five years worth of podcasts documenting these various reports. So that's why we um, never want to neglect sharing these stories from all over the world. Um, but this is some good news, rather. Um, and when I say good news, any kind of resistance is good news, in my opinion, meaning that people are not laying down and taking it. But when the Ferguson report came out, um, when it came out, one of the things that we did in our analysis on this program was to determine or come to the conclusion that what we were looking at were RICO uh, Act violations. Now, the current um, Justice Department is using, and police departments like the NYPD are using RICO Act, which is, again, laws that were uh, written up so that they could target mob, organized crime, international and national organized crime. Now we are seeing RICO charges being brought against um, uh, men and women of color just for knowing somebody who might have been in the gang and, and you might have known somebody that killed somebody, so we're going to charge you as an accessory, even though you was in college after all these years later. Um, and that person that killed somebody did their time, but you knew them, you uh, were associated with them, so we're charged. So that's how it's being used now. So when we heard that, I think it was Johanan, was it the SPLC? Was it the Southern Poverty Law Center that sued um, that city in Alabama or, or sued in federal courts over RICO charges for a private bonds company and ended up putting them out of business, and this reverberated as they had across the nation as they had offices or were operations in several cities that they had to shut down. So here's something similar to that. Um, and, and these are being done by the victims of slavery themselves. Uh, this article comes to you from the DailyBeast.com. Um, it was posted by Betsy Woodruff on the 27th of February. She said, the nation's second largest private prison company is facing some serious legal challenges, and other companies may soon be in the same situation. On Monday, a federal judge ruled that current and former 
Detainees held at an immigrant detention center in Colorado can join a class action lawsuit against Geo Group, a private prison company. The plaintiffs allege that the Geo Group forced detainees to work for extremely low wages or for no wages at all. In some cases, threatened detainees with solitary confinement as punishment if they refuse to work. The center holds undocumented immigrants facing the deportation. That that's not all they hold. Um, but anyway, this is the first lawsuit of its kind in the history of the United States, said Andrew Free, one of the plaintiff's attorneys. This is the first time that a private prison company has been accused of forced labor, and this is the first time that a judge has ever found that the claims can go forward under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act and the bans and federal law on forced labor. So I had never heard of this Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And again, this is why journalistic work on this issue was very important. Even if these people don't even acknowledge it as slavery, they're still providing us with tools that others can pick up and use against um, um, the modern-day slavers and human traffickers. Um, Yohanan, Brother Dabaha, any comments on uh, this, this strategy of, you know, because, again, it was mentioned earlier, and I mentioned this in a, a Black Talk radio commentary I did earlier today. Um, and imagine, no, I didn't mention this. I wrote about it. But imagine if the Obama administration, instead of letting, waiting until the last couple of months of his last days in office uh, to issue this edict saying that we're not going to renew these contracts um, uh, with the private prison companies. Imagine if he did that two months into his second term then there would have been no election of Donald Trump in order to allow their stocks to rebound after they almost were driven out of business as their stocks took a tremendous tumble just on the announcement of that, that news. And so now we're looking at because they didn't take the action when they should have took the action to kill private prisons, now we're faced with um, you know, a ramping up on, on the drug war, the immigration actions to fill these private prisons and their stocks are probably never been higher in their history uh, before. So what does that mean? That means that then we, the people, are going to have to identify other ways outside of government to fight this battle. And, 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 and like Malcolm X said, I believe by any means necessary, if we had to go into their courts of injustice to document this stuff or at least make a record of it, who knows how it can turn out again. The SBLC lawsuit ended up with a private bonding company uh, going out of business and shutting their doors. Uh, fellas, you have any comments? I love the idea of yeah I love the idea of going uh, after the whole industry. Um, so the bonding companies I think make a lot of sense to me. Um, someone is holding the insurance um, claim, and someone is, is getting paid um, to do that work. And so you know there's a there's an economics piece there that, that there's some accountability there. But but I also love the contradictions you know of, of having people that are supposedly um, not having any rights uh, be able to assert their right um, to be treated a certain way or assert their right um, to have access to certain things or assert their right even uh, to, to have an ability to vote or to have an ability to organize labor 
Um, all of those things, I think, are definitely coming um, and have to be a big part of our playbook because the only way that it's justifiable that, you know, they, they, their voice doesn't uh, manifest in a vote, the only way that it's justifiable that um, prisoners or people incarcerated can't organize um, their own labor and can't have um, a bargaining, uh, the only way that it's justified is the 13th Amendment and is the, the ripping away of their status as uh, citizens. And so getting that reinstituted and bring, bringing as many examples, uh, not only in courts, but into public opinion and, and into public eye, um, you know, I think that that is absolutely critical because everything is happening because we have to humanize it or it has been dehumanized. Criminals, quote unquote, have been dehumanized. So who cares how they're treated? Who cares, you know, who's forcing them to work? You know, they shouldn't have done what they did, right? So that's what our justification in this socialization has been. So anything that pushes back up against that, man, I think is a great strategy. I'm, gl I'm glad to hear that news. I'll be looking into that. Mm -hmm. You hit on something important that I always try to tie into the program, you know, whenever it, it comes up. This is, again, everything we talk about with slavery. I mean, as we just went all the way back in the, into the Bible, however far, however historical, how many years, whatever, it's there. It's a part of society. People associate that with the past. Some portion of the population associate that with a historical past. So let's just accept that maybe that really is something that happened thousands of years ago. It's the same on every level with slavery. The same thing, like you're saying right now, the, that connection of dehumanizing, of creating a culture where people are, are led to believe, well, they deserved it. I mean, that's exactly what allowed settler colonists to steal this land we're sitting in right now, is the dehumanization of the indigenous people that was here, saying they didn't have a religion, saying they didn't have culture, saying they didn't have souls, saying they weren't intelligent, saying they were this and they were that, they were criminal, they were whatever deserving of. You know, we, we get a number like 250 to possibly 300 million people, but who knows? It was probably more, more than, and then you talk about the transatlantic slave trade, the same thing. These people were not slaves when they went and got them. These were doctors and teachers. <laughs> These were medicine men and, 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 and just... These were fathers and sons and mostly children and young adults, just like right now in America, the young adults is the future of the slave system. This went on for 350 years that we know of, of just straight up raping the continent of the most powerful resources. But once they arrived in this new in the new world, all they were was black and somehow deserving of what was happening to them, whatever they had to call them. Whatever they had to do, the, the simianization, they apes, they monkeys, the soullessness of them as they're being put out there. The land is 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 uh is is ignorant. The land has no education. This is the I mean, we I don't have to tell y'all about the reality of the first universities on the planet, known planet Earth is in Africa. I mean, but these people completely went against all of that and said, we're living in trees and swinging from the trees and living in mud huts. And these are the first civilized towns and cities and buildings and structures built planet but you have to dehumanize you have to say that these people deserve this and all the way even right now with with cops the tv show and with the crack 100 to 1 sentencing that we get a half black president that says oh it's 18 to 1 and you can't come flat out now 
in 2017, it should be one-to-one, if anything. I mean, why would it still be 18-to-one? Well, because black people use that. I mean, it's every layer, every step of the way, and I just don't understand for the life of me how every single solitary person of color that lives in this domestic colony amongst us is not able to find one hair on the head of oppression to want to yank out. You ought to be able to find something. If you don't care about prisons, if you don't care about stop and frisk, if you don't care about getting shot extrajudicially, if you don't care about the, the bail, if you don't, I mean, it would, you got to be able to find something, something that drives it home for you, that says to you, wait a minute, now see, that's what I won't tolerate. And if you would just pick one thing that got you in your crawl and you just couldn't let it go and then join with the rest of us, all of us got something and some of us got a lot of things and we could come together and actually make a change as opposed to believing the narrative that they continue to try to control to say you deserve what they do to you. Oh, man, like you said, the preacher's telling the folks, well, if you will watch your behavior, it's it's mind-boggling to me that, that people still think this way. Um, we do need to take our last station identification break. Um, do want to remind our Black Talk Radio Network listeners, Mind, Body, and Spirit will be on at 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. We want to get out of here uh, about uh, 10 till the top of the hour. We want to wrap up the show. So, again, if you have any questions or comments, anything you would like to share, give us a call at 866-510-9025. Hit star star. Um, I'm going to, before we go into this last break, I'm, I want, again, this is a woman's history month. Women have always played a prominent role in the abolitionist movement past and presently. So, but we want to pay homage to some of those of the past. Uh, then when we come back, um, we also want to go into our two segments. Uh, we are, our abolitionist in profile is Sojourner Truth. Um, but, Johanan, if you could prepare to our underground uh, writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. I'm sorry, I butchered that. Um, but that would be uh, Innocent Man finally pardoned after Mike Pence refused to clear his name, with Mike Pence now being the uh, vice president of USA, Inc. Um, let me get to our abolitionists before we go to our break. Uh, we are highlighting women abolitionists, Mary Ann Shad Carey. 1823 to 1893 was the first female black newspaper editor starting a publication titled The Provincial Freeman in Canada. Her abolitionist activities came naturally to her. Her father worked for the Liberator, run by famed abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. After the war, Kearney Carey earned in 1883, a law degree from Howard University, shout out to the HBCUs, making her the second African-American woman in the United States to earn this degree. You are listening to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, providing you with new black media for this new millennium. Stay tuned. We'll be back on the other side.
Black Talk Radio Network is made possible in part with help from the Black Talk Media Project, a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. to Black Talk Radio, new black media for the new millennium. Chapter President in Charleston, South Carolina. He joins us tonight to discuss um, many of things related to 21st century slavery and human trafficking. Of course, a riding shotgun is Johanna and Elia. And shout out to the Parthis family. Max couldn't be with us tonight as he spends much needed time with his family. But we welcome you all to this broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio and we welcome your thoughts. Um, do want to also give a shout out to libertarianism.org. I'm not endorsing this organization as I don't know much about them, but they are the source of these abolitionist profiles tonight. Um, interestingly, they have two sections. They have black women abolitionists, freedom fighters, as they call it, of the 19th century, and they have white women uh, abolitionists. Um, we've been going between the two in, and, um, uh, paying homage to our women who were abolitionists pre-1865 uh, slavery. So, um, Johanan, um, any thoughts, man, before we go into um, our writer of the 21st century underground railroad? I just want to mention a couple of headlines. I mean, just kind of uh, tapering off, like you said, into the uh, last segments of the program. I mean, I think it's very important to note uh, the comments of, of the new uh, uh, head uh, was Attorney General Sessions, and uh, people were predicting that he was going to be, you know, hell on wheels. It was going to be a problem having him in after having Eric Holder and uh, President Obama for everything they were doing that was wrong or double-faced or, you know, whatever behind the scenes, suing to, to keep certain things in place and, and preventing people from getting out. They did at least make uh like we've been talking about the symbolism and and uh, uh having it out there the propaganda was prevalent of the police department investigations in major cities around the country and those doj reports um you know those are not just the government saying what the government wants to say or trying to propagandize those are actual local investigators and former police officers from those departments and all sorts of local resources that put in thousands and thousands of hours into producing those two often 200 page or more reports and giving us the facts and the data and the information 
that, like you said, with the RICO case that SPLC was able to win or the case that the Arch City Defenders was able to win the, for reparations for all the black folks in the Ferguson and the areas around Ferguson, those little small areas where the police departments are destroying those people by just constantly profiling and throwing them in situations, throwing tickets at them and so forth. Um, to have Jeff Sessions come in and, and, you know, this is the thing about like Trump, you know, with this administration, they getting started with the things that we we know that they hear us. We know that they know slavery is the only generator they have, the only plan they got. We know this is real because they didn't waste no time to jump right in on these kind of measures against what we're fighting for. If we if we saw something two years from now, then we maybe we're not such a big deal. These fools ain't even got out the first month before they boosted private prisons, throw up the uh, detention of more immigrants, create more slave positions, get more stock money into the price. I mean, all of this on and on. And now Jeff Sessions comes out. First thing he's doing, he's looking to reverse a lot of the things that, that uh, Holder put out there in, in these reports that DOJ put out there. He's looking to stop doing that and show support for the police. And I mean, I heard in Ferguson just a month or so ago, the chief of police there, St. Louis County chief of police said that the Department of Justice put out that report about Ferguson and they had their arms open and was waiting for some kind of a report or some kind of help or something to happen as a result of that. And he said straight up the windows closed on that. Nobody ever called me back. Nobody ever came back here and got with us and worked with us to put anything in place. Nobody from the government ever did anything to implement any of the ideas and suggestions that they put out in that report. So now that we got a new administration coming into play, I'm throwing that out to hell with them. The doors closed. You can forget it now. That's what they chief of police said. So now we see Sessions saying we're going to stop doing those. Uh, doing those reports. So, I mean, I think that's something that's important that people realize that the temperature is is rising. The mood is changing. The climate is definitely changing. So, I mean, I, I just, again, I'm always just kind of left like, I don't know what it's going to take for people. Maybe Trump is a good thing to oppress people so hard that where well, they can't ignore it. I mean, I, I don't know. But other than that, I mean, I can get into the rider of the Underground Railroad and, and, and we can kind of keep wrapping up the program, I suppose. Yes, if you would, uh, move us into that, and then we'll – I have a five-minute clip for uh, provided by bio.com. Well, excuse me, I checked that. Uh, Liberty – let me get this guy his credit because uh, I appreciate uh, people when they do that kind of work. Um, I'll mm -hmm. find it later, uh, but I'll give him uh, uh, his due credit. But he produced a piece on Sojourner Truth that I thought was on point. And we'll uh, then get our final comments from our guest tonight, Brother DeBaja out of um, Charleston, South Carolina, BLM, and abolitionist. And uh, so, yeah, if you want to go into our, what, 21st century underground railroad writer? Sir, the uh, we writer of the 21st century underground railroad is uh, Brother Keith Cooper out of Elkhart, Indiana. As people know, uh, Indiana is a state where Mike Pence, now the vice president of the United States, uh, was formerly the governor. Um, and uh, one of the pieces I found is talking about it was was uh, uh, just saying, you know, Mr. Cooper was sentenced in 1997 for a robbery that was committed in Elkhart, Indiana. But and he still had a felony on his record, despite being a free man. He served 10 years in prison before his conviction was overturned. Um, it was a letter written by Michael Cristofino. Um, it says, I'm the former deputy prosecuting attorney that prosecuted Keith Cooper in Elkhart, Indy, in Elkhart's county, county Circuit Court. I'm writing to you in support of Mr. Cooper's petition for a pardon. 
uh, in 2005, an Indiana Court of Appeals overturned the conviction of Cooper's co-defendant. Cooper was given for the same judge that convicted him or go free with a felony on his record, with his family struggling, struggling to get by in a homeless shelter. This is how they, dis- this is how they dismantle the communities. Uh, he chose to go home instead of battling it out in court. In 2014, Indians parole board and the prosecutor of the case unanimously recommended that Pence pardon Cooper. Pence refused. Instead, the governor told Cooper that he should request a new trial and exhaust all of his legal options before requesting a pardon. Uh, and that was according to Indiana's Fox 29 news channel. Said a petition on change.org suggested that Pence refused to pardon Cooper because it would look bad for Curtis Hill, the prosecuting attorney who offered Cooper the agreement in the first place. Hill is the Indiana Republican Party's candidate for attorney general. So this is a political decision to not even try to clear this man's name, even though he's not guilty of the crime that they, they had wrongfully convicted him of, and he served 10 years for it. So your time and your name means nothing to these people. Pence has pardoned three people with felony convictions who had, who admitted guilt during his time as governor. Now, that's the difference. His brother said he never did it. So this is another thing. I mean, it's all just textbook. Had Pence pardoned Cooper, it would have been the first time in Indiana's history. And I don't know what just happened to what I was reading. Said uh, it would have been the first time in Indiana's history that, and I got to get back to it. Come on, stop. My computer just completely started flipping out of this. Anyway, we'll get to the to another story. Or something. It would have been the first time in Indiana's history that somebody that said they wasn't, in, that wasn't guilty that was pardoned actually got, got pardoned on an official, in an official capacity. Uh, after years of fighting to clear Cooper's name, news of the sudden pardon came as a, as a surprise even to his legal team. I was not given any kind of warning, so I'm flying back to Chicago now. Cooper's lawyer uh, told the Daily Beast from an airport on Thursday, Holcomb announced uh, Cooper's pardon just hours before. After careful and thoughtful consideration and review, something I've thought about every day over the last month, just earlier today, I issued to pardon I issued a pardon to Mr. Keith Cooper for his past and I believe wrongfully armed robbery felony conviction. Uh, conviction, he told the press Thursday, uh, over the Thursday pardon. I'm very much at peace pardoning, for the, pardoning him for the one he claims innocent on. He has, uh, he has from the very outset, and I believe he is innocent of that, of that crime. Um, so he's out, and they finally did pardon him. Pence is gone, and his... Johanan, we might have lost Johanan. He's having those issues. You know, we still yeah. have you on the board. Yeah, go ahead. Political position. So- uh, I'm sorry, Johanan, but you were out on us. Uh, but, you know, we running out of time for the sake of time. Uh, let me go ahead and just uh, and welcome to Freedom. Um, Keith Cooper, Mr. Cooper. Welcome to Freedom, Maintain Your Innocence. It reminds me of the Move 9 um, out of Philadelphia. Uh, even when the slave plantation overseers, known as wardens and staff, recommend that you let the Move family out, they still refuse to pardon them. And that's because in a lot of cases we have these police unions, former cops, slave catchers, who sit on these sort of boards that make these recommendations or grant these uh, paroles and what have you. So it's no small thing, you know, getting your freedom. So, uh, man, I wonder if he's going to get any reparations. So let's move into our abolitionists and profile. Again, this is Women's History uh, Month. Although on this network, we always sharing history. 
Uh, we don't uh, segregate by male or we just talk about it all. Um, but we, you know, want to just, we just had a big march of women out there marching for women's rights. And um, a lot of these women um, need to become abolitionists and reclaim their historic role. Um, we want to see them um, out there on November, excuse me, that will be August the 19th in Washington, D.C. at the Millions for Prisoners Human uh, Rights March, especially considering women are the fastest growing demographic um, that is being enslaved today. So our abolitionist and profile is Sojourner Truth, and it is provided to you by the YouTube channel, The Story of Liberty. Well, hello. This is John Bona with the Story of Liberty. Her name was Isabel Bumphrey. In 1843, she heard a voice from heaven and began telling people of God's truth and his plan for salvation. She was born in 1797. You know, at the age of 46, she gave herself a new name, Sojourner Truth believing this to be on the instructions from the Holy Spirit, and she became a traveling preacher. That's the meaning of her new name. Truth was born into slavery in New York. She was one of 10 or 12 children, and in 1806 she was sold at an auction when she was just nine years old. It was included with the flock of sheep for $100. Her new owner was a man whom Truth remembered as being harsh and violent. He didn't treat her very well. She was actually sold twice over the following two years, finally coming to reside on the property of John Dumont in West Park, New York. It was during these years that Truth learned to speak English for the first time. She escaped with her infant daughter to freedom in 1826 at the age of 29. She had to leave other children behind because they were not legally freed in the Emancipation Order until they had served as bound servants into their 20s. She later said, I did not run off, for I thought that wicked, but I walked off, believing that to be all right. She found her way to the home of Isaac and Marie Van Wagner, who took her and her baby in. They treated her kindly, and she lived there until the State of New York Emancipation Act was approved a year later. The story goes that Truth had a life-changing experience. During her stay with the Van Wagner, she became a devout Christian. She loved God, she loved Christ, and she loved reading the Bible. And so in 1829, she moved with her young son, Peter, to New York City, where she worked as a housekeeper for a Christian evangelist, Elijah Pearson. She said, the Spirit calls me and I must go. She became a Methodist, and she left to make her way traveling and preaching the good news and talking about the abolition of slavery. 
Over the next decade, Truth spoke before dozens, perhaps hundreds of audiences. In the 1840s, she connected with the abolitionist movement, becoming a popular speaker in that time. And in 1850, she also began speaking on women's rights. Her most famous speech, Ain't I a Woman, was given in 1851 at a women's rights convention in Ohio. During the Civil War, she actually met with President Abraham Lincoln, too. Sojourner Truth has been honored in many ways over the years. There is actually a memorial stone in the Stone History Tower in Monument Park, downtown Battle Creek. She said, I set up my banner where I go, and then I sing. And folks always come around me, and then I tell them about Jesus. She went home to be with the Lord around Thanksgiving Day in 1883. Sojourner Truth would begin her messages by saying, Children, I talk to God, and God talks to me. There was the life of a wonderful lady, Isabel Bumphrey, who changed her name to Sojourner Truth. And welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. So I guess the theme for tonight's program is to tell the two churches. What kind of church do you go to? What kind of Christian are you, as certain people want to point to other religions and say, hey, I'll talk about their involvement of slavery. What's your involvement of slavery? So I again want to put out the call that all churches should withdraw their deposits from all of these banks who are invested in modern day slavery and human trafficking. If you had a conversation with your pastor and they give you excuses on why they want, will not do it, then you need to find yourself an abolitionist church. That's all I have to say on that. Let's get the final comments from, from our guys, um, our panel tonight. Um, 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 Brother Dubaha, uh, you have any final comments for us, sir? I just want to give thanks for the opportunity to be on New Abolition Radio. I want to give thanks for Brother Max Parthas for his education and for his mentorship into abolition and uh, understanding my role in the movement. I want to encourage all my comrades out there to look into understanding the slavery society we live in and get ready to fight back. All power to the people. Thank indeed, you. power to Yo, the honey. people, indeed. Thanks for joining us tonight, brother, and definitely look up, uh, look up to you, uh, look up to the fight, to the struggle that y'all putting down in, in your part of the country, understanding we're living in a domestic colony. So, you know, Trump talks about the wall or whatever. People really think about that and act like they believe in that. But, I mean, we already walled in into the domestic colony. So it's important when we have our comrades and coworkers and, and fellow warriors in the trenches that's all around within the country, different places around the country, showing what they're doing and bringing back the results of their fight and changing the narrative, changing the reality in their own corner of the country. I always appreciate that. I always count that a privilege to hear the war report, you know, from the ground someplace else. So it encourages me as well. 
I just as always just want to say peace to the abolitionists. Peace to you, Brother Moordine, for joining us. Peace to the abolitionists. Peace to Max Parthas. I know you out there doing your thing. Peace to you, Scotty Reed. Peace to all of our comrades nationwide. The abolitionist fight continues. Death to the oppressors. If you're oppressing people, you know who you are. All right. And again, um, Max could not be with us tonight. And uh, we do have another program I need to transition to, but I want to uh, thank our, our guests. And we definitely got to have you back, Brother DeBaha, more more often giving us some of those reports from the field of abolition in South Carolina or wherever uh, you are organizing. Um, but I just want to say is we cannot be complacent if you come to the realization that this really is slavery and it's not some pseudonym or acronym or something else. It's slavery and it's legalized by the U.S. Constitution in the 13th Amendment. So if you are against slavery, you know, that's a clear moral position. You either are or you are not. Either you are a slaver and you support slavery, even if, as we hear a lot of white folks like to say, uh, well, my family didn't own no slaves. Yeah, but they probably fought for, for to keep it in place. Okay, that's what that battle flag is all about, that slaver's flag, that terrorist flag. All right, so, um, again, uh, I'll just leave you with the words of Max Parthas. Abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know peace. Peace. Hey, no, no, no.